Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I'm Ben Shepherd. And today we're going to be discussing Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity by Walter Bauer, published in 1934. This book is really fun for a number of reasons. We all read this book for the first time together, Ian, Laura, and I, in a seminar at UNC. In a seminar taught by Bart D. Ehrman. Who some of you may have heard of, <laughs> and whom we will mention later on in the podcast. But it is an influential work of scholarship. There's really no way to talk about the development of Christianity beyond the New Testament without talking about this book. You really cannot overstate how important Bauer has been for discussions of the second, particularly the second century church. Like we said in our Harnack episode, how one positions oneself relative to Harnack on lots of issues, including Marcion, Bauer is for the second century. If you're talking about the development of orthodoxy, the development of canon, the development or uh, history of different heresies, you are positioning yourself relative to Walter Bauer. The thesis of this book has come to be colloquially referred to as the Bauer Thesis. And the Bauer Thesis is a response to something we're going to call the Eusebian model. And these are opposite ways of modeling or understanding the development of the earliest Christian churches. Bauer argues for the chronological priority and numerical dominance of quote-unquote heresy from the perspective of the 4th century Catholic Church, from later perspectives, what we call heresy, and we'll talk about that issue in a bit, everywhere outside of Rome. So if you are dropped into Syria in particular, or Alexandria, or Asia Minor, the mainstream kind of Christians there, according to Bauer, are not the sort of Christians in the early 2nd century that by the 4th century would be called Orthodox. So, a good short quote that summarizes Bauer's position comes from the introduction. Perhaps, I repeat, perhaps, certain manifestations of Christian life that the authors of the Church renounced as heresies originally had not been such at all, but were, at least here and there, were the only form of the new religion. That is, for those regions, they were simply Christianity. The possibility also exists that their adherents constituted the majority and that they looked down with hatred and scorn on the Orthodox, who, for them, were the false believers. Right. This way of framing things is really an explicit rejection of what Bauer calls the Eusebian model of Christian origins. Eusebian is the adjectival form of Eusebius, the famous 4th century church historian who wrote the ecclesiastical history. And according to Eusebius, as Bauer represents him, Jesus handed on orthodoxy to the 12 apostles. And the 12 apostles then distributed themselves across the globe, and from them grew up the orthodox church, everywhere prior, everywhere primary, everywhere majority. And heresies then always and everywhere developed as secondary parasitical deviations from this initial pure Christianity. What Bauer claims is that this model that we find in Eusebius and a lot of other early sources around the time of the Council of Nicaea, around the time of Constantine, is actually taken up uncritically and perpetuated by historians of Christianity from that period 
up to the time of his own writing, which is in the 1930s. Yep. So he is not just arguing against Eusebius or Origen, who also suggests a similar model. He's arguing that uh, all the historians of his own day have taken this model and accepted it, and he is going to do a thorough criticism of this approach. Absolutely. One of the methodological insights that's going to run through this entire book and is really an essential thing to get from Bauer is that we cannot rely on heresiologists. We cannot rely on orthodox historians like Eusebius to accurately and fairly represent their heretical opponents and predecessors. These Christians are committed to giving the quote-unquote Eusebian account, to giving a Christian retelling of the origins of the church and to portray their opponents as always illegitimate and always heretical and always sort of parasitical secondary mutations of a original primary Christianity that for them must have gone back to Jesus. And perhaps even more important for some of the criticisms of Bauer that are still being published is the unrepresentativeness of what is preserved. And Bauer makes this point at the beginning in his methodological section, and then in a big way in his later chapters on the use of literature in the fight against heresy. If you go read some of these modern apologetic anti-Bauer books, what you find is tabulations of orthodox authors and non-orthodox authors. Um, and look, all the surviving literature is by orthodox people. Well, Bauer would say, no, duh. Um, not only are heretical books being <laughs> suppressed actively, but the interests of later medieval Orthodox scribes are guiding which books they're copying over and which ones they're not. One of the inter really interesting ways to look at it is even which texts are preserved by some of our earliest authors. So Tatian is my favorite example. The only surviving work of Tatian is his Oration to the Greeks, a critique of pagans. But we know third century authors and others, Origen and Clement, are citing works of Tatian that are discussing the powers in heaven and these plurality of aspects of God and things like that, which, no surprise, don't survive. And Bauer says we need to pay attention to the suppressed voices, to the silences, and to the places where Orthodox authors betray stuff about their heretical opponents against their own agenda. Ich Spitzmann, no duh, auf Deutsch. <laughs> so we're going to follow in this podcast basically the form of the book itself, the way that Bauer lays it out, which is to give case studies about particular locations. In each chapter, he gives his argument as to how heresy might have or did precede orthodoxy in any given location. What's important to understand for what Bauer is doing is that he's attempting to totally overturn this Eusebian model. We have the Eusebian model that says everywhere at all times, orthodoxy was first and heresy always was a uh, corruption of orthodoxy. And Bauer is attempting to make the opposite argument that in every place, except for Rome, of course, as we'll see, heresy was the first version of Christianity and orthodoxy was secondary. We think Bauer's arguments are important, even if we don't agree with them in every case, because the type of argument he's trying to make is 
really an absolute argument that is a complete refutation of the so-called Eusebian argument. Whereas by the end of the episode, we'll come to some conclusions that are a bit more nuanced than the arguments that we're going to summarize. Right. Ben and I both think Bauer probably overstates his case. But to really appreciate what Bauer is doing and the positive reception of Bauer, you really only need to go read some anti-Bauer books. And you quickly discover why, in spite of our marked disagreements with Bauer's particular analyses, we think Bauer is so foundational for the study of the second century. Absolutely. Okay, case study number one. Edessa, the heart of Syriac Christianity. If you dropped into not the second century, but the fourth, fifth, or sixth century Syria, and asked a church leader how Christianity came to Syria, they would tell you a story about how the king of Syria sent a letter to Jesus, inviting Jesus to travel to Syria to escape the Judeans and live there. And Jesus wrote back and said, I'm not coming now because I have to die, but I will send you one of my disciples later. And then following Jesus' death, the disciple Thaddeus, transcribed into Syriac as Adai, journeyed to Edessa and established the church there. Now, Bauer is going to give not only an extensive critique of the plausibility of this story, which most people who study this period don't find even remotely plausible, but an argument that if we look closely at the origins of the church in Edessa and in Syria, we find that it was a very different group or set of groups that dominated the the Christian scene. Bauer begins his closer study with a text called the Chronicle of Edessa. And the Chronicle of Edessa is a basically a list, a chronicle, of important events for Edessa. And it has things like when the kings started to reign, when certain natural disasters happened in Edessa, and it catalogs the birth of Jesus, which, of course, didn't happen in Edessa, but is important because there are Christians. And then the next event that's relevant for Christianity is the apostasy of Marcion. <laughs> and that's followed by the birth of Bardison. And these are notable because Marcion, if you listen to our Harnack episode, and Bardison, we're going to talk about in a bit, are both notable, famous heretics. So why are these two events important to catalog in the Chronicle of Edessa? Well, maybe because they reflect something important about the population of Edessa. And it's also notable for Bauer that both events happen before the first church is founded, at the beginning of the 4th century. In the same entry, the Chronicle of Edessa note starts to note the succession of Orthodox, as he's defining them, bishops. So we have noted in this local chronicle the advent of two important quote-unquote, heretical figures, before we have a succession of Orthodox bishops beginning. Ephraim, who is a Syriac writer of the 4th century, mentions that earlier in the history of Edessa, that the Orthodox Christians were named Chaludians, and that there was another group that called themselves Christians. Now, they were called Chaludians because they were followers of Chalut, who was presumably, or as far as we know, uh, one of the first or the first significant Orthodox leader in the city of Edessa. And what makes this really interesting is because if you read the early Christian Orthodox literature, 
you see very quickly that there is a pattern of heretics and schismatics being named uh, by their founder, right? So Valentinians being the followers of Valentinus, Marcionites, the followers of Marcion. So this seems to be a strategy in early Christianity of identifying a heretic by the name of their leader, right? And so what this indicates is that there was a group in Odessa at a certain point who called themselves Christians and who regarded the Orthodox as heretics because they identified them as Paludians. It's worth noting that in those other sources, the uh, heresiological sources that refer to groups by their founder as Valentinians, as Marcionites, that Irenaeus, for instance, says that these people usually just call themselves Christians. So everybody seems to call themselves Christian and other people by the name of their founder. Ephraim is upset that his group gets referred to colloquially as Paludians, not Christians. And if we want to find out who seemed to be recognized as Christians generally and not Paludians in early Syriac Christianity, we can turn to the narrative of the conversion of Mar Abba, in which the author steps in and says that according to local custom, Christian, the word Christian, referred specifically to Marcionites, not his group, the, what we would call the Proto-Orthodox, or the, the group with which Ephraim identified. And this, of course, matches what we find in other sources. Justin Martyr, a contemporary of Marcion, says that Marcionites, the followers of Marcion, know themselves just as Christians as well. So what's really interesting is that even an Orthodox author has to concede the term Christian here, according to local custom, to Marcionites, and defines himself, although he thinks he is a true Christian, he recognizes that, according to the conventional usage of, the, of that term in that region, Christian does not refer to him. Christian refers to Marcionites. So Ephraim, again, who is an Orthodox witness in the Syriac tradition, considers Bardasian to be his great opponent, to be the arch-heretic of the Syriac sphere. You know, one of the interesting things that we have recorded in Eusebius, uh, actually, is that when Bardasian writes, he polemicizes and, and writes against Marcionites, uh, but not against any Orthodox. And again, this is according to Eusebius, you know, an Orthodox writer, which seems to indicate that Bardasian didn't seem to think it was important to write against Orthodox and thought writing against the Marcionites was the most pressing thing he could do. And then Bardaisan, who would come to be considered a heretic, um, who had a sort of complex view of God's relationship to creation and had, you know, a from the later perspectives, an overstated role for astrology, he would, in from later perspectives, be understood as sort of a quasi-Valentinian. Bardaisan then comes to represent a major leader in the Syriac church against Marcionites. Um, so we have this text, The Life of Ibericus, uh, where the protagonist travels to Syria and is greeted by a procession of Christians headed by none other than Bardaisan. Um, so this author seems to think that Bardaisan is the leader of the non-Marcionite sect in this area. Um, and we have other evidence for the prominence of Bardaisan there. Um, a church of Bardaisan survived prominently and was destroyed in the 5th century. Ephraim is said to have written his hymns in Bardaisan's tunes because the latter, Bardaisan's, were so popular 
that Ephraim had to try to displace them by imitating their tunes. These two groups, it seems, represented the majority of early Syriac Christians, and Christians seemed to be a little bit upset by the fact that the Orthodox groups represented a minority. Cumulatively, what we have here is evidence that, first of all, Orthodox Christianity in Edessa is late and in the minority, whereas the majority of the earliest Christians in Edessa were of some variety of heretic, uh, potentially uh, Marxianite. It's important to note for the misreception of Bauer that to affirm Bauer is not to say that Jesus was in fact a Marcionite. It's just that in this region, at this time, it seems that non-Orthodox forms of Christianity represented mainstream Christianity. And it seems to me that is all that Bauer is trying to accomplish. So Bauer's next chapter is on the city of Alexandria in Egypt. What he finds is that, first of all, that there's very little evidence for Christianity in Alexandria prior to the second century. We just don't have material that can be reliably traced back to Alexandria until the second century when we have people like Clement of Alexandria. There are texts like Hebrews uh, or the Epistle to Barnabas that are often theorized as being from Alexandria. And as we'll, as we'll see in a second, Bauer does actually think Barnabas is from Alexandria. But we just don't have a lot of really clear evidence of materials from Alexandria that represent Christianity. Bauer goes on to argue that there's little evidence for Orthodox Christianity prior to the 3rd century, which is where we find the bishop Demetrius, the erstwhile friend of Origen, and Bauer considers the Bishop Demetrius to be really the beginning of Orthodox or Proto-Orthodox Christianity in Alexandria. So he traces a couple different lines of evidence for this. He talks about the Epistle of Barnabas. He says that this is an Alexandrian document, and he points to the mention of the Greek word gnosis and its derivatives, as evidence that this is a Gnostic or Gnostically influenced document. Okay, the Epistle of Barnabas is a probably 2nd century document that is attributed to Barnabas, the traveling companion of Paul. It is present in our oldest complete New Testament, Codex Sinaiticus, along with the other books of the New Testament. And it is mostly a diatribe against how quote-unquote, the Jews read scripture, and it is a sustained argument for exclusively allegorical readings of the Old Testament. And because of this, because of the association of allegorical readings with Alexandria, and maybe some geographical notes, and the fact that it appears first in Alexandrian authors, um, a lot of people attribute this to Alexandria, um, and I think this is perfectly plausible. The problem, as we're going to talk about at the end of our episode, is it really, there's no reason to think this is a Gnostic text. Bauer also points to a large number of early heretics who are explicitly identified with Alexandria or said to have originated in Alexandria, among them being 
Basilides and his son Isidore, Valentinus and Carpocrates, and Apelles, who is known as one of the foremost disciples of Marcion and one of our best sources for the development of Marcion's theological system. So basically, we have a lot of really early references, and there are more references. Uh, there's a bit more obscure. But we have a bunch of early references to known heretics in Alexandria and much fewer references to what we would call Orthodox Christians in Alexandria in the early 2nd century or prior. We do have Acts talks about Apollos being from Alexandria, but even he is in need of some kind of correction from Paul. So the evidence seems to indicate that the earliest, most well-known, at least most well-known, Christians in Alexandria were heretics. So then Bauer goes into a description of two Gospels, which he claims are specifically connected with Alexandria or Egyptian Christianity by virtue of the fact that they are referenced significantly in texts that that we know originate in Alexandria. And these two Gospels are the Gospel of the Hebrews and the Gospel of the Egyptians. And his claim is that these two Gospels are the first Gospels in Egypt, and we know from Orthodox writers that neither of these Gospels are quite regarded as Orthodox. They may be cited by Clement uh, for origin, but on the whole, these aren't in any way equivalent to the four Orthodox Gospels. Which is a grouping we're going to problematize in a second anyways. Even the name Gospel of the Egyptians suggests that this isn't the title that the Egyptians gave it, but a title looking in from the outside and saying, okay, this is a gospel that Egyptian people use. Bauer divides the work of Clement of Alexandria into two phases, what he calls an earlier, more Gnostic phase and a later, more Orthodox phase. The earlier phase being Clement's outlines, and then the later phase being his miscellanies. Uh, And by doing so, he presents kind of a trajectory where you go from the early Clement, who is more Gnostic, to the late Clement, who is more Orthodox, to Origen, who is even more Orthodox, to Demetrius, who again, Bauer argues, is the, the real representative of true Orthodox Christianity in Egypt. And Bauer suggests that if you trace this trajectory backwards, that you end up with a wholly or mostly Gnostic Christianity in Alexandria, and Clement is really kind of the first person to start moving this in an orthodox direction, which eventually culminates with Demetrius. As evidence for his claim that Gnosticism preceded orthodoxy and coexisted with it, at least until the time of Demetrius, he quotes a story, actually, again, by Eusebius, about how when Origen was a young man, he was forced to take up residence in the house of a particular patroness who accepted him as a guest, but this woman was also the patron of a very famous heretic. And so you see in this story, Origen, who is, at least for Eusebius, uh, Orthodox, and heresy kind of literally coexisting in the same household. 
and the things that this did not change, that orthodoxy did not gain prominence until the time of the Bishop Demetrius. Ben and I are using the term Gnostic following Bauer, and we're going to continue to use that term because Bauer does. We are, of course, aware of the problematic nature of this term as a label for a specific religious movement. I have an episode lined up with another guest to do on Michael Williams' Rethinking Gnosticism and Karen King's What is Gnosticism that hopefully will come out shortly after this one. So you can look forward to that. For now, we're going to continue to use it as sort of a typological way of grouping Platonizing forms of Christianity the way that Bauer does. So much of the terminology has changed and evolved, and we'll touch on this again a little later. Yep. But So what we have here in Syria and Alexandria are two case studies where it looks like heresy has preceded orthodoxy, and then when orthodoxy comes onto the scene, it is, represents a minority group there. Robinson and others are going to criticize that Bauer has started with two places where we have relatively little literature. There is not a whole lot of second century Syriac literature. And what we have, by the way, is from Bardaisan. But Bauer, of course, knows this. One of Bauer's key points is that part of the reason we have no literature from second century Syria and second century, early second century Alexandria is because all the literature that was written then are heretical books. And people didn't save Bardaisan's many books or the works of Basilides who had some 20-some volume work on the Gospels that people are still quoting into the 5th century. We've lost all of these works, all of the early literature of Syria and Alexandria, because, according to Bauer, it was heretical. And so to say you can't use these as your prime case study because so little literature survives is to use one of Bauer's own arguments against him and to sort of miss the point of the selective transmission of early Christian literature. That is, the suppression and just gradual loss of quote-unquote heretical works. That's a, that's a really good point. The, the way that we know that these works existed is from the Orthodox writers themselves who either explicitly named them uh, or you know, show their existence by virtue of, of quoting them. From here, we move to regions that are better attested, because in these regions, we have early proto-Orthodox authors, which our medieval scribes are preserving, and Orthodox authors are quoting and praising. So, we begin with Ignatius and Polycarp. Hey, Ben, do you know anything about Ignatius? Just a little bit. <laughs> Part of the reason I really wanted to do this episode with Ben is because Ben is the Triangle's resident expert on Ignatius. Ignatius of Antioch is a 2nd century martyr bishop who wrote seven letters to churches in Asia Minor. And so when we talk about Ignatius and Polycarp, we're talking about early Orthodox Christians or proto-Orthodox Christians in the Roman province of Asia, which is the western side of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, for reasons that are unclear to us in terms of why he's in this position, Ignatius is being taken from his home, Antioch in Syria, to Rome to face trial and execution. As he's being escorted across Asia Minor, he's writing letters to churches 
in this area, and he writes seven letters to uh, six different cities, and then he writes one to Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna. So he writes, ends up writing two letters to Smyrna. Ignatius, in these letters, is not only attacking heresy, but pushing his flagship issue. The one thing that Ignatius really likes to hammer home is the monoepiscopacy. That is, each city has one bishop, and if you are not in accordance with your bishop, you are in the wrong. And Bauer is going to try to tie all this stuff together to argue that in these cities, it looks like heresy is running the show, and Ignatius is sort of is weaponizing the bishopric to advance his orthodox agenda. One of the fundamental issues here is the question of whether this monopiscopacy, whether the institution of one bishop ruling over every city who then has presbyters below him and deacons below them, is already present in these Asian cities, uh, or if this is something that Ignatius is himself attempting to institute. Bauer is really going to come down hard on the second option, that this is something that Ignatius is actively trying to promote and create as he travels across Asia Minor and kind of dashes off these letters to these various churches in different cities. The way that Bauer tries to explain Ignatius's really insistent and fervent uh, attempt to get these churches to follow the bishop to do nothing without the bishop, to have the bishop at the center of their communal life, is he actually thinks that Ignatius is in the minority in this situation. He presents this scenario where you have leadership by different elected representatives, which presumably in this case would be presbyters, and a situation in which the majority is being represented by these different presbyters, but there's a certain faction that can't gain traction within this governing body. And so this particular faction decides to establish the rule of one single leader, and the term that Bauer uses is dictatorship, in order to establish the primacy of their own party. Interestingly, this is being written in 1934 in Germany, so there's definitely certain political resonances that are no doubt influencing Bauer's position on this. However, what this means is that the reason that Ignatius is so insistent on establishing one ruler rather than a collective is that this is the best way to establish his faction over others. What this means is Ignatius is actually in the minority, and it is the heretics around him who actually have the upper hand in terms of the majority, in terms of the leadership in Asia Minor. In, in every letter, Ignatius is always very quick in the beginning of his letters to talk about how unified these churches are and how they're all bound together under the bishop. Uh, but then he, he seems to be talking out of both sides of his mouth, because then he goes on in other places to say, you know, when he writes to Ephesus, he says, you know, why are not all of you prudent? Why are we persisting in foolishness? In Smyrna, he talks about someone who, by virtue of his high position, is opposing the bishop. And the word he uses for position here uh, is the same word he uses to refer to the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, right? So this is how Bauer comes to the conclusion that in Smyrna, actually, there is what he calls a Gnostic anti-bishop. There is someone who has set himself up at, in opposition to Polycarp, and that you have at least two people 
uh, vying for control over the Christians in the city by claiming the title of bishop. And we also need to bring in here Polycarp's letter. So from Polycarp himself, we have one letter. What's really interesting is the way that Polycarp identifies himself, is that he identifies himself in the letter as Polycarp and the presbyters with him. And what Bauer points out is what this has to indicate is that there are certain presbyters who are with Polycarp and certain presbyters who are not. So even Polycarp's own bleeding and the fact that Polycarp in this letter never designates himself as a bishop, he never actually claims this title, means that his position as bishop is actually contested, that whatever position he's claiming for himself in Smyrna is contested, and that there are other groups in the city, uh, potentially a majority of other Christians in the city, who oppose him. He also talks about, in Philippi, the hoi poloi, a phrase we know kind of colloquially in English, but which in Greek indicates the great masses in Philippi. He says that these people are docetic Christians, or what Bauer identifies as docetic Gnostics. So even in the church he's writing to in Philippi, he identifies the majority there as non-Orthodox Christians. I am not particularly sympathetic to Bauer's construal of a lot of these passages. And um, the history of scholarship on Ignatius and Polycarp has not been overwhelmingly positive on Bauer's construal of these authors and these passages. The first half that Ignatius is trying to institute the monoepiscopacy and not reflecting an established practice is, I think, probably accepted by most scholars. But the latter half that these things like Polycarp and the Presbyters with him reflects a minority position necessarily is probably an overreading of those passages. Bauer's next chapter actually also uses Ignatius and Polycarp again in perhaps his most famous argument, which is his arguments from silence. He shows that the cities that come under the most critique in the revelation of John, the Apocalypse, the last book of the New Testament, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, and Sardis, we find no mention of in Ignatius and Polycarp. And Bauer thinks this silence is meaningful. We have, at the end of the first century, some pretty harsh critiques of these cities, and then in Ignatius, maybe 20 years later or so, we have utter silence about cities in the same region to which and through which Ignatius is writing and passing, respectively. Similar things has to be said about if Colossians, Hierapolis, and Thessaloniki. These are cities which Ignatius, some, some of these cities Ignatius must have passed through on his route, and yet we have no mention of them from him. He writes no letter to their bishop. And this suggests to Bauer that either the church there has died, or more likely that heresy has taken over from the perspective of Ignatius. Likewise, we have, as with Alexandria, references to early heretics coming from Asia Minor, Cerinthus, Menander, Saturninus. These are very murky figures in the early history of the church because none of their writings are preserved, but they too came from the same region and are remembered as opponents of the proto-Orthodox church. So one overlap between Paul, Revelation, and Ignatius is the city of Ephesus. And so Bauer goes uh, and does an elaborate recreation to try and work out what happened to the Pauline community at Ephesus and involves 
Jewish Christian emigres coming from Palestine uh, after the Jewish War and the replacement of Pauline Christianity with a type of Jewish Christianity. And then, you know, by claiming a very late date for the pastorals, he argues then that we're dealing with Gnosticism in Ephesus. It's very complex and a little shaky. I don't remember that argument very well. I should probably move on. Yeah, that. And then we come to Rome, the bastion of orthodoxy for Bauer. And in Rome, we see how orthodoxy came to conquer the Mediterranean by the 4th century. And the first piece of evidence we have of this for Bauer is First Clement. So First Clement is a letter that is part of the collection known as the Apostolic Fathers, which are regarded as some of the earliest Christian documents we have after the time of the New Testament. Uh, and it's a letter that is from a leader in Rome to the city of Corinth. It talks about a particular political struggle in Corinth where certain leaders have been deposed and Rome is weighing in on the situation and coming in against these youthful up-and-comers and their zeal. And so what Bauer sees in this letter is a kind of political opportunism that by the end of the first century, which is when this letter is usually dated, Rome is already starting to throw its weight around and weigh in on the problems in other churches. Bauer, in a bit of problematic argumentation, reconstructs a heresy in Corinth against which Clement is writing. And this has not been well received in scholarship, so we're going to kind of skim over it. What's important here is we see Rome interjecting into the internal affairs of another church in favor of one party rather than another. And this, according to Bauer, is a pattern. Ignatius says that Rome, too, taught others. That is, Ignatius recognizes Rome as sort of the central teacher of the kind of Christianity he views as orthodox. And Bauer looks for further evidence. Dionysius of Corinth refers to gifts sent out by the Church of Rome, and there's early evidence of salaried bishops in Rome, our earliest evidence of that. And so we see perhaps financial resources being put into action in favor of orthodox parties. And Bauer hypothesizes perhaps along with this letter came a gift of money to favor the party which Clement viewed as orthodox. There's no explicit evidence of that, of course, but we have to imagine this letter being carried by a human being and an advocate of orthodoxy to Corinth. And we see in this letter and in later Roman literature, particularly the catalogs of bishops mentioned by Irenaeus, a later heresiologist, the development of the notion of apostolic succession. That is, first Clement claims continuity with Peter and Paul, and Irenaeus claims direct succession of bishops from the apostles. And we see this model perhaps being enforced on other churches, on Antioch, and eventually, for instance, in the succession of bishops from Thaddeus, as we talked about in Syria, this model of apostolic succession being used, being weaponized against heretics. Of course, Bauer notes the heretics too claimed apostolic succession. Basilides claimed to be a hearer of um, one of Peter's disciples, as did Valentinus, a hearer of one of Paul's, and so on. 
when we talk about first climate, I think it's not appropriate to talk about apostolic succession unless we're very clear what we mean. If you take apostolic succession in, in the really strict sense of the truth of the faith being handed down from Jesus to the apostles, to their followers, first climate doesn't really say anything like that. Um, in order to get something like that, you have to go to Irenaeus, who's writing uh, in you know the 180s. Absolutely. Uh, and the first climate, what you have is a description of church leadership, that the apostles appointed certain people to lead after they were gone, uh, which can be described as apostolic succession, but I think some people fudge um, the, the very important distinction there, that this is not describing you know the passing down of the true faith, certainly not in Rome uh, at the end of the first century. Rome and the Orthodox party also wielded literature against heresy. That is, the books we come to call the New and the Old Testament became tools in their fight against other groups of Christians. Again, I can't help but first refer to some of these anti-Bauer books who claim that Bauer is neglecting the New Testament. Bauer spends a whole chapter just on the New Testament. I'm not sure how thoroughly these people are reading Bauer. Um, Bauer's point is that the New Testament is selected on the basis of later fights over orthodoxy, that these groups in the second century don't agree on what is or isn't in the New Testament already. My favorite example of that, by the way, is Ephraim says that the students of Bardison reject 3rd Corinthians, yeah, 3rd Corinthians, because Paul so clearly refutes their heresy in 3rd Corinthians. Ironic in light of the fact that probably in this case, 3rd Corinthians is a later edition brought on by the Orthodox, and Bardison here preserves a slightly older version of the Pauline epistles. And we can probably say the same thing about the pastorals being added to the canon. Uh, Marcion, Tatian, P47 doesn't have the pastorals. These seem to be engaging second century controversies. And the Church Fathers are not only selecting these works, but also editing these works to better accord with their conception of orthodoxy. And finally, one of my favorite little sections from Bauer is his treatment of Jewish Christianity and his pointing out that orthodoxy moves and leaves behind Jewish Christians. Um, they were not once heretics and became heretics as the boundaries of orthodoxy shifted. So consider the compromise reported in Acts that the Jewish Christians could be law-observant as long as they didn't force the Gentiles to be. This seems to be the position that Paul settles on. And then we move a little later, and Justin says it is a matter of great controversy whether or not any law-observant Christians are, in fact, Christians. And we move on a little bit later, and we have church fathers saying that anyone who observes Sabbaths is a heretic. We have here New Testament orthodoxy, being left behind. And if you've listened to our episodes on, you know, Stanton on the Gospel of Matthew or or Martin on Galatians, it is not at all clear that the books that ended up in the New Testament in fact support 4th century orthodoxy. Um, it looks to me for sure that Matthew is the party against which Gal Paul is writing in Galatians, or, you know, maybe not the exact party, but something very close, um, represents a law-observant form of Christianity which Paul would not certainly get along with. And we talked about in our Revelation episode how there are some pretty clear statements in the Revelation of John against the positions for which Paul advocates. 
that is, some anti-Pauline elements in Revelation. So what we have is a diversity of Christianities that are together being that are being collected together and read in light of each other and in read in light of a view of orthodoxy and weaponized against heretics. And the heretics, of course, claimed these books and other books and other forms of these books as their own. So we've already cast a little bit of doubt on some of Harnack's scholarship as it regards Marcion, but he really was a voluminous uh, writer, he's prolific, and he, he obviously had a lot of good things to say. And one of uh, Harnack's contributions that Bauer cites is a tabulation of titles, right? So just simply names of works that are mentioned uh, that date uh, through the second century. And when you collect the titles of all these works, there are more heretical books than orthodox books recorded. And this is, again, from orthodox sources. Of course, almost none of these survive, because, as we keep saying, Christians preserve orthodox books, not non-orthodox books. And what does survive from this early period are things we recover, usually from dig sites, not from medieval libraries, with a few exceptions. The point Bauer here is making is the selectivity of the earliest works of Christian literature to form the New Testament, up th and then, of course, to form the collection we call the Apostolic Fathers, but the... But this notion of a continuous literary tradition of proto-Orthodox reaching without interruption back into the first century, which is so often appealed to in anti-Bauer books, is very much an artifact of, of who and what theology later champions of Orthodoxy decided to preserve. So, as we've seen, each of these particular case studies is arguing that either in a particular place, heresy is the first version of Christianity and the original version of Christianity to arrive on the scene, and that Orthodox Christianity comes later or is secondary. Or we have seen that Val argues that in certain places like Rome, Orthodoxy was dominant from the beginning and had an active role in turning other communities from political positions to orthodox ones. So, for Bauer to be right, I want to reiterate, is not to say that Paul was a Gnostic. Um, he has been read that way uh, by some of his proponents and some of his opponents, but for Bauer to be right, we just have to imagine that there were people who were born, lived, and died who understood themselves as Christians and as nothing other than Christians, who believed things that would later come to be heretical. And that such groups represented a serious rival in certain places and at certain times, often often quite early, to the kinds of Christianity that came to be understood as orthodox. A lot of the particulars, as we've noted, of Bauer's construction have been deeply problematized. Barnabas is not, in fact, Gnostic. Allegorical interpretation pervades proto-Orthodox as well as non-Orthodox approaches to the Old Testament. There's, there really is no evidence that Clement is writing against Gnostics. And, yes, his arguments from silence perhaps are a bit too optimistic. I'm not persuaded that Colossians was overwhelmingly Gnostic by the fact that Ignatius passed through there and failed to mention an Orthodox bishop there. 
it's possible, but it seems like we would need more evidence to support that construction of things. So a lot of scholars have recognized the power of Bauer's thesis, even if in certain situations he goes off on the wrong track. Alain Le Boulek, who's a French scholar whose work has, uh, unfortunately, especially for us grad students, yet to be translated uh, from French into English, that uh, has made a really influential argument about heresy and orthodoxy in terms of discourse rather than talking about discrete groups. And this is important for thinking about the public literature that we have and knowing that this is what we have is almost overwhelmingly orthodox in orientation, saved by the orthodox and the heretical works were destroyed, that we can't always take these texts at face value and that we have to recognize that these are presenting us with, with discourses or different strategies of interpretation. And what we have in the second and into the third centuries are different strategies of reading, uh, different strategies of polemic and apologetic that are being utilized both by the Orthodox and those who are going to be regarded as heretics. And that even a category of heresy is not something that is static, that it is a fundamental assumption, an assumption that I would say the Eusebian model uh, and some anti-Bauer scholars beg, the question that they beg is that heresy is simply a static concept rather than something that can be attributed to any system by anyone. Again, going back to Edessa and the Plutians, the Plutians are identified as if they were heretics by people who we now consider heretics. So the definition of what is orthodoxy, what is true Christianity, and heresy is a matter of who's talking and what kind of strategies they use to talk about other people and other groups. Yep. Bart Ehrman, who, as you mentioned before, is one of our teachers, has definitely popularized the term proto-orthodoxy. That is, we shouldn't talk about orthodox groups before the 4th century, back when the debate over who was and wasn't mainstream Christianity was hotly contested. And he's sometimes been criticized for discussing the development of theology teleologically, that is, describing Justin, who in some ways, you know, has certain distinct continuities with the 4th and 5th century orthodoxy, but also differs in significant ways, for instance, Christology, describing Justin in terms determined by 5th century categories. And while I'm sympathetic to this critique, we certainly don't want to talk about history as if, as if its development was inevitable, or as if orthodoxy couldn't have but one. I don't think anyone who's read Ehrman could, would actually say that's what he's doing. No. It's pretty clear that is not his agenda and not his analysis. I would argue that anachronism is part of doing history. There's good reason to, when you're looking back and discussing a, you know, a foot race, to discuss what the eventual winner did, the choices they made that resulted in their victory over and against other runners. That isn't to say that is the only way things could have ever turned out, but it's useful as a historian recounting events sometimes to use anachronistic categories. In fact, I would say it's inevitable that we use anachronistic categories. So I want to give validity to these sorts of criticisms, but also say that proto-orthodoxy remains useful 
for picking out certain continuities, as long as we don't let this self-conscious anachronism blur our understanding of history in other ways, or become sort of teleological historians, that is, seeing what we now understand to be orthodoxy as inevitable and sort of incohate in the second century. I think it's also important to to distinguish when we're trying to talk about an actual historical social group and what they believed and a tradition and a pattern of discourse that persisted uh, over several centuries and was eventually finalized. You know, when we talk about the proto-Orthodox literature, we're talking about the literature that survived, the literature that was preserved. Right. So, and that literature was preserved for a reason. Absolutely. And so we can talk about commonalities in that literature. Yep. It's when we start describing the historical situation, things get hairy, and the terminology becomes important. But I don't think any one of those kind of questions about terminology can discredit anyone's work on this topic. And one more note on reception. The most recent anti-Bauer book that presents itself as historical scholarship makes a big point of the absence of bishops in descriptions of early heretical groups. This author says that it is notable that there are no bishops for Marcionite churches, and that suggests that Marcionite churches were never a major rival. This kind of argument, I think, fails on so many levels. Um, first of all, it is not at all surprising that Irenaeus, in giving a succession of Orthodox bishops going back to Peter and Paul, fails to do the same thing for his heretical opponents. That would be rather silly. I think what we have here is a modern historian, again, following Irenaeus's tendentious misrepresentation of history and taking that at face value. So one of Bauer's primary insights here is being neglected. Also, it's worth noting that this just fails to account for some primary evidence. Uh, the fact that the dialogue of Adamantius does in fact mention countless bishops of the Marcionite Church. And of course, as we discussed in our Marcionite episode, we have Theodoret talking about entire Marcionite villages and him warning them against wandering into Marcionite churches because they're indistinguishable from proto-Orthodox churches. There is in fact good evidence that some of these early varieties of Christianity represented major rivals in certain regions and at certain times to to the kinds of Christianity we would come to recognize as Orthodox. One of the really significant contributions that Bauer has made that influences, I think, all of New Testament early Christianity scholarship is that we need to pay attention to the way Christianity developed in certain places, uh, in certain cities, if we have enough data to talk about that, talk about geographical specificity. And that is now a huge part of the field you have works like Peter Lampa's From Paul to Valentinius, which examines the Church of Rome in the first two centuries, uh, which are incredible works of scholarship. People talking about Alexandria, about Antioch, and each of these studies is giving us a more precise insight into what Christianity looked like over time uh, at each of these places. And so I think that is one of the enduring legacies of Bauer's work that everyone, I think, is going to have to acknowledge. Yep. So a major theme in Bauer, which we, we flagged uh, and which you've no doubt noticed throughout this podcast, is 
the way that we've questioned our sources uh, and uh, interrogated them, maybe in in some respects. And this is regarded by a lot of people as being a kind of hermeneutic of suspicion, right? And this is regarded in a negative way. A very prominent New Testament scholar suggested that instead we should approach these texts with a hermeneutic of love. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, your approach to these texts is going to reflect the, the situation that you're in institutionally, uh, maybe even your own personal convictions. But I just think talking about this as, you know, reading against the grain or, you know, especially a hermeneutic of suspicion really isn't actually charitable enough to what we're doing. I think what we're doing is trying to read these texts as real people who are situated in real historical situations and have to deal with real historical problems and who view this problem of heresy and orthodoxy as incredibly important. And then they have to do whatever it takes to uh, combat these issues, right? And so it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be regarded as overly cynical when we question someone like Irenaeus or Eusebius to ask whether they're really giving us the whole story. I think this is really just acknowledging their humanity and the fact that they feel like they're in a position where they have to use every tool at their disposal to combat something that is for them, you know, a life and death issue. Absolutely. Uh, and so, I again, I think, you know, some of our listeners will really resonate with the approach that, that Bauer takes. Some of them will really kind of react against it. But I just want to give kind of a, a positive apology for what the kind of work that Ian and I do in that, you know, this is not about being ultra cynical. It's not about questioning everything. It's about really addressing these writers on human levels and trying to figure out what are they saying in the context that they're in. Absolutely. And when we are so lucky to recover works from the hands of groups that would later become heretical, when we recover an occasional work of from the school of Bardaisan or quotation from the school of Marcion, we read their characterizations of the proto-Orthodox Church with the same kinds of skepticism. Marcion accuses the mainstream church of corrupting scripture the same way that the mainstream church accuses Marcion of corrupting scripture, Tertullian points out. Neither Ben nor I think we should accept Marcion at face value and reject Tertullian, um, or vice versa. Like Ben said, we are just trying to read these as historically situated humans dealing with issues of grave significance to them. Thanks, Ben, so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, this is our inaugural interview episode. Yep. If the audio quality is a bit different, it's because Ben is calling from North Carolina while I sit in southern Minnesota. And if the sound quality is a little less than desirable right now, you'll have to be patient with us as we figure out how to improve that situation. I've seen brighter stars than you I don't mind Okay. Uh, I blanked over a second. I, I trust you. <laughs> okay. It's always the next attraction that's said. Yeah. <laughs>